So as we've seen now leading up into this section of, of Acts chapter 10, God has begun. We remember also Christ said he would build his church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. He told the disciples that you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. We've seen as we've begun to move through the book of Acts that that is exactly what's happening. On the day of Pentecost, God began a tremendous outpouring and an inflow of the gospel, bringing people by grace into the kingdom of God. 3,000 in that day. Then we saw shortly after that, Philip goes on to Samaria. And in Samaria, as he preaches the gospel, God once again is pleased to have mercy on those who are dead in their sin and bring them life in Christ through the gospel. And then Peter and John came down that they would be able to attest the same grace that they had received on the day of Pentecost is the same grace that had been poured out upon the Samaritans. Now here, as we take up chapter 10... They are beginning to see the next stage in that, that indeed the Gentiles, those who to the Jews were, were aliens, were, were dogs, were separate and looked down upon severely, they are going to begin to grasp their full inclusion. Now, though we are exposed to it very clearly here in chapter 10, it takes some time for it to really catch on. And they're wrestling with uh, how this works. We know that in chapter 15, they're going to wrestle with what, what's required regarding the law for these Gentiles. We see the, the, even in the book of Romans, as Paul writes, there still is this struggle where it almost looks like the Jews want to retain some sense of, of superiority with the Gentiles a little bit below them in quality, second tier belongers to the Savior. Whereas it, it seems contrary to that, the Gentiles are thinking, because of all you guys did rejecting and crucifying the Savior, if anyone is second tier, it ought be, because that's kind of how our hearts tend to work. But this passage uh, begins to unfold a number of things, and there is no such thing as second tier. We are all one in Christ. And so this passage is ultimately, as we get to the end of it today in 36 and move into next week, it exalts the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ, which the church must and cannot ever lose. But in the process of people doing church, a lot gets in the way. And those are the things that we want to be cautious about and concerned about. Now we saw that with regard to Cornelius, Cornelius was a man who was a God-fearing man, devout. And yet he was, the scriptures were pleased to make clear that it's not going to be on the, on the basis of human sincerity or devoutness, but it's going to be on the name of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in any other way. It comes not by sincerity. It comes not by religious commitment. We know that Cornelius was a man who was praying in the seeming uh, traditional patterns of the Jews. Remember he was praying at the ninth hour. That was a Jewish practice when the angel appeared to him. So by those standards. But he's not going to be saved by any of that. Salvation is singularly 
Through who? Jesus, our Savior. Now, we know we live in an ever-increasing age where that's not popular. Salvation should be on the basis of love or on the basis of tolerance or fill in the blank with any other nonsense but those are not the basis of salvation. The grounds of our salvation is and always shall be entirely on the person of Christ. On his finished and accomplished satis wrath satisfying sacrifice. His righteousness is what grants us acceptance before God. Amen. And that is clear. And there's no other name. We don't play the game that there are many paths and that there are many ways. The scriptures are remarkably clear. And so we recognize that if you go back a little further, God has been pleased to save a multitude of people throughout the Old Testament. And so that even the character that was displayed by Cornelius was not somehow innate to him. But it was an endowed and enabled character as he had already, in a sense, known the grace of God being somewhat of a proselyte. But this is the age of transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the, the Jewish economy to that which is by faith in Christ. It is a, it's a glorious age. And at each stage, God is pleased to have those men that he had uniquely appointed as first-hand faithful witnesses to be present. Again, if we were to go just a little further in Acts chapter 10, uh, it, it would go on to say this in verse 40. But God raised him of Jesus on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us. Who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now listen closely. There is a sense in which we are also witnesses of Christ. Right? We, we ought and must be that. But we are not apostles. They were witnesses in, an, in a unique, indeed, apostolic, indeed, authoritative way. They weren't sharing the details of, of simply their beliefs, their opinions, their traditions. They were declaring the truth as they themselves received it from Christ. And so what, what we begin to, to see as we wrestle through here, they were endowed, the character was endowed and enabled, Further, we also saw the uniqueness. An angel appeared to Cornelius, didn't he? Now, we noted that's not our frequent personal experience. But even then, what did the angel declare to him the gospel of Jesus? No, he did not. He simply told him, go and get Peter. And Peter would come and Peter would declare him the gospel. We considered briefly last week, did the angel not know the name of Jesus? Of course he knew. Did he not know he was the son of God? Of course he knew. Did he not know that he died and rose again? Did he not know of his substitutionary sin-bearing sacrifice? Did he not know these things? Indeed, he would have. But the message of reconciliation has not been entrusted to angels. 
the message of reconciliation, those who become the ministers of reconciliation are us. I love the language when, when he shows up there and meets Cornelius and, and Cornelius starts to worship him. It confuses us a bit because in our culture, there's pretty much no one who would show up at our door that we would even likely start worshiping them. I would hope, you know, I mean, but there are people who hold certain celebrities at, in a strange status, but, but generally we wouldn't do that. But what was his response? I too am just a man. We remember also the way that Paul would describe it. The power is not from us. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay jars. The, the apostles had a privileged position as witnesses and ministers, but they are not to be venerated or deified in any way. At the end of the day, they are just men. Men through whom God by his spirit was pleased to speak and therefore to deliver to us the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not being improved upon. It's not being changed or altered in any way. And what a confidence we have. It doesn't matter what country you're in. Doesn't matter what culture you're subject to. It doesn't matter what's going on in the prevailing age. The gospel does not change. The will of God does not change. The person of Christ does not change. Styles of clothing and, and hair and such seem to change with the age. But we've got to make sure, and I, and I want us, as, as we begin to see this, to see a couple of things. And the first thing that we're going to really take up today is what I'm going to say, the danger of traditions and customs of men. Okay, Not all traditions and customs are evil. I'm just urging a great cautiousness with it. We in this church also have, a, have particular patterns that we do. We always start with a reading of scripture. That's the very first thing that we do and then pray. And at the very end of the service, there is a prayer and then a reading of scripture and a doxology. We begin and end with scripture. That is what we do here as a commitment to the scripture and the centrality of that in the practice of the church. But if someone in another church does not start with this reading of scripture, but starts with prayer, is that okay? What if they started with a song without prayer and without reading of the scripture? Is that wrong? So, but, but what can happen is we can become so rooted in our present experience, we may visit somewhere else and be like, I can't put my finger on it, but something's not right here. And, and it may not be that anything necessarily is wrong. So I want us to be careful in, in understanding so we don't want to elevate our own customs and practices. And part of the challenge is God is going to be unfolding here things that are going to begin to break the mold of not only customs and traditions, but things that had been given specifically and ceremonially to the Old Testament saints. And he really begins to unfold this 
in Acts chapter 10. Verse 12, we looked last week at where, where the traditional translations generally say that Peter fell into a trance and recognized it, it would be more accurate to translate that. And in astonishment, he saw a sheet coming down from heaven. Now, again, I would hazard a guess none of us have ever had that experience. Further, it says on this sheet, depending on your translation, were all kinds of animals or all manner of animals. Now, I just want I'll throw this out as a side note before we get back focus on this text. This particular word here for all kinds or all manner is the common word for all. So a lot of times people get caught up and they say, uh, all, you know, God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then they, we struggle in our minds also with um, all that the father pleases, he does. Wait, I'm getting confused. You know, when the son of man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Wait a second. When he was lifted up, did everyone come to him? Did the chief priests and scribes? No, so we just have to be a little bit wiser when we read the scriptures. And this is just a side note that in the Greek, the word for all doesn't mean always mean all completely. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it means all kinds, all types, all manner of. It's just important to keep that in your mind. And then you, as you read and pray, the context helps to flesh, for us to flesh out is it all comprehensively or is it all kinds? It wasn't hard. Now, the translators have often made that decision for us, which is a, messes with us. Um, here, the translators understood on the sheet that came down from heaven was not every single animal that ever lived in the entire world or every single animal that's living in the world today. Millions and millions of squirrels and, and everything else. That's not, but there was all kinds. Representatives of each kind and class. And more significant to this issue in the, in the stating of all kinds, there were some that um, with cloven hoofs and chewed the cud and some that did not have cloven hoofs but chewed the cud which some of you are saying, why in the world is he saying that nonsense? And I don't even know what he means. Uh, those were the laws which animals the Jews could eat and which animals they could not eat. The sheet comes down with animals that even they were not permitted to eat. And God speaks to him as he looks upon a mixture of clean and unclean animals. And says, rise, kill and eat, which the hunters among us love that phrase, rise, kill, and eat. But, but sometimes I think we're misunderstanding it. He has no shotgun. There's no mention of a bow and arrow. I don't know the method that was expected at this moment as he's sitting on the roof, probably ill-equipped with weaponry. I, but, you know, come here. But the, the, the picture is, even it's... It, it's not super clear, which is why when it's all done, he himself is perplexed. Because even though he was hungry, as the scripture says, it's unlikely he was ready, ready to eat that many animals at one single sitting. 
So uh, again, I'm also perplexed to a degree because he's told rise, kill, and eat. And he says, I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, there's probably clean animals there too. What makes you think you've got to go for the pig? You know, you, why can't you just go for the goat? He's right there because all kinds of animals are there. But again, they couldn't be done with eaten with strangulation. And maybe that was the only means. Whatever it is, Peter was just, I don't get it. And more than, more than just, I don't get it, 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 it was wonderful. And I always love this about the Lord. When he gives instruction, it's not always that confusing. Rise, kill, and eat. Now, if he tells Peter to do this, is it wise for Peter to give reasons why I'm not gonna? Reasons why I shouldn't. Maybe he, I would have loved personally for him to seek clarification. Um, some of them are unclean. Do you really want me to get them? But strangely, uh, or sad, maybe not strangely for Peter, he didn't make it about clarifying the will of God. Kind of made it about himself. Like he often, well, I have never from my childhood eaten. Uh, what? Why have you made it about yourself? Isn't it always about pleasing the Lord? I mean, if he's pleased with us, what, what do the other things matter? So he says to him, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, and always strange to me to think that this would be a human response to the word of the Lord. By no means. Uh-uh. Not going to happen. Uh, what? But then I remember, this is Peter. <laughs> Peter often is one who's a bit slow to learn lessons. And, I, and I remi I'm reminded of this. When he goes to say, Cornelius, I too am just a man. He may be in that moment remembering, boy, I just, just a day or so ago was hesitant to just act on the clear word of God. I too am such a man, such an ordinary weak man. We know that beyond this, eventually he's going to come. And Paul says to the Galatian church, he when some, he's eating with the Gentiles, but then when some Jews come in, what does he do? He pulls back from eating with them because why? And Paul says, this is out of step with the gospel. This is an act of hypocrisy. Not only did you do it, but when you did it, some of your buddies did it too. And even Barnabas was influenced by that compromise. And so we note this, with regard to their life and their sanctification, apostles were not perfect. But with regard to their testimony and their proclamation, it was perfect. We remember in John, he had said, he spoke, spoke, speaks to them in John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, I will not leave you orphaned, but I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you.
Jesus, even specifically, we like the secondary application, which I'm thankful for. But he prays in John 17 to the Father. And of those who were entrusted with him and will shortly become apostles, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And by the grace of God, because of his divine working, we have this confidence. What he's given to us through the apostles is truth. But, I, but if, you, if you look at Peter, it says, rise, kill, and eat. And the voice came to him again a second time, verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. So, so the response was appropriate. There's some unclean things here. I don't understand. You're asking me to violate these food laws. And what God explains to him is what? Those things that were previously deemed unclean. God has now made them clean. Whew. That's, a, that's one that uh, gets the brain spinning and twisting many times uh, for us. But more than that, verse 16 tells us this. This happened three times. Three times. Now, whether the sheet went up and back down three times or, or the sheet stayed down full of animals and God said to him, rise, kill and eat. And he refused. And God said, what I've called clean, do not call common or unclean. It happened three times. Now, wouldn't you have thought after God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. And then he says, rise, kill and eat. What would you do? Yeah, you would have gone the first time, Chad. <laughs> but the second time, after he's explained it, you're thinking, well, now Peter's going to do it. He's hungry anyways. But he doesn't the second time. It happens the third time. Rise, kill, and eat. Does he do it the third time? No. Scripture, three times. He's hesitant. He's refused. He's confused. He's perplexed. And then it's taken up. And he's wondering, what's going on? Now, we do have in Mark chapter 7, where the, they had been, uh, the Pharisees had been scolding the apostles because they had eaten without washing their hands. In Mark chapter 7. They're breaking the tradition of the elders. They're defiling themselves. They're becoming unclean because they ate without washing their hands. Now, that was not specifically an old covenant law, but it was a tradition of the elders. And it's a wise family practice for any children here. I'm not discouraging the washing of hands before eating. Um, but Jesus answered them because their whole thoughts we're, we're just so meticulous on just moral religious action and not on inward purity that Jesus just takes and turns it around and he's preparing for the advance that's even going to take place right here in, in Acts chapter 10. He says this in, in Mark 7 verse 18. He said to them, then are you without understanding? You know, which is always the best way to start a conversation with someone. Are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach. And then is expelled. 
And then uh, modern translations here say, thus he declared all foods clean. The King James there simply says, purging all foods. But the word specifically that's used there is, is not, not the words that you eat the food, you expel it, and you purge your body of it. That's not the word that's used there. It is not the word for purging, but it's the word for cleansing. That when, when someone would come after the various number of days and cleansing rituals who had had le leprosy, they would have to show themselves in the temple and they couldn't participate in worship until the, they were pronounced by the priest, you are clean. That declaration, and in that declaring, they now, from having been unclean, are clean and could participate in old covenant worship. That, that was the sense. Jesus here says, all foods are clean. Whoa. Peter was there for that. And he still didn't get it. And so I, what I want us to understand is tradition, custom, and culture is a powerful baggage. So hard to let it go. And sometimes we let it hold so much sway. But Peter commonly needed reiterations, didn't he? Uh, three times in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, including Peter, look, we're going to Jerusalem. And, and when, he, when he did it, it was remarkably clear. When I read those passages, sometimes I tap my head thinking, what's wrong with these men? Because Jesus would say, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. Beaten, mocked, spit upon, crucified, or killed. And I will rise again on the third day. And then the scripture was like, uh, they did not understand what he was saying. What? How do you not understand that? Well, it's so, it was so different than their expectations. They were anticipating a powerful political messiah. And what they received was far greater, a glorious, eternal, spiritual Messiah, whose kingdom was not of this earth, but whose kingdom is without end. <laughs> you know? So it's far better, but it just didn't fit their expectation. Since it didn't fit their expectation, the assumption was what? All right, this isn't what I think, this isn't what I want. It's wrong. Peter... Took Jesus aside and what? Rebuked him. Are you not off stunned by those words? Peter took Jesus and rebuked him. He told them three times and they still didn't get it. Until after he died. Rose again and appeared to them. Remember when the women came from the grave and told them, listen, he is risen. What did they... Oh yeah, he told us three times this is what was... No, what did it... Nah, didn't happen. No way. Until he appeared. And, and then they couldn't deny it anymore. Except for the one fella who wasn't there. Thomas, who gets a bad rap. He's no different than the rest of them. Refusing to believe until they saw and experienced it. I don't believe it until... But then he showed himself. Why, were, why are they, why are we so hesitant to take God at his word? No more of that. We need to take him at his word. The same thing, Jesus says, look, you're going to deny me. 
Did Peter agree, I'll deny you? He did not. Well, all right, you're going to deny me three times. <laughs> when Jesus meets him by the lake, subsequently, after his resurrection, he says what? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And he does this what? Three times. I'm often interested in what's the deal with Peter? He gets things in triplicate and still doesn't quite get them. But that said, did he not still serve in the, as an apostle? Did God not still have patience and mercy upon him? I am so thankful for that. Because as fun and maybe easy as it is for us to look and tisk, 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 Peter. I'm not like him. Uh, God's mercy towards us and his patience towards us is something that we experience daily. You know, we're somebody writing the record and account of our compromises. How would you like it? No, because most of the time, we're even fooling ourselves as to our insufficiency. But uh, we see this, this begin to happen. But the, the, the change is taking place, but it's not just the food. Even in the sending of this down, the, the ab abolition of the food laws is not the priority here. That's just a picture of the breaking down, as it says in Ephesians, of the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's breaking down that dividing wall, and in its place he is building one new man. And this was something I don't understand. Well, as soon as he was done, the Gentiles arrive at the door and the Spirit says, go down and go with them. And so Peter began to figure out God has something special going on here. Again, I just want us to help to really press home this idea of customs and traditions with cautiousness. Note the commitment to customs. In Acts chapter 6, when Stephen was being accused of certain things, he was being accused among things of saying this in Acts 6.14. For we have heard him say... That this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Mo that Moses delivered to us. The thing that so disturbed them is the thought that their customs would be changed. One of the things we briefly looked at this morning and we'll look at in more detail in our morning Sunday school hour in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. And to the Gentile, I became as a Gentile. And to the weak, I became as one weak. And we see that he is not committed to particular customs that would, that would make him seem unaccustomed to others. Now, now, when we say that, the goal is not, let's look around at the world and be as much like them as possible. No, 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 that, that's not what it's saying. But we don't necessarily develop our own patterns and customs that, that would set us apart. It says this in uh, even not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 16, when they've grabbed Paul and others, it says, verse 20 and 21. 
When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, they are disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us. So everyone's going to have their customs and their culture. And I could share with you also, one of the things that you, we face during years of, uh, of ministry in India is those of, of the Indian background will say, these Christians are destroying our culture. Because a big part of their culture is their religion, is their idolatry, is their festivals. Marriages are arranged by the parents, one family to another family. It is not uncommon, however uncomfortable it makes you, for a couple to possibly meet only once before their marriage. And maybe not even have a conversation. It's entirely arranged by the families. And it's because this family is of like social standing and status with us. But now someone in that family becomes a believer. What do they no longer do? They don't go to temple. They don't, they don't worship idols. They don't participate in the idolatrous festivals. Further than that, they tell them, their parents... I cannot marry apart from the Lord. I need to marry someone. I need to be equally yoked with someone who shares my faith. And that's just, according to Hindus, Christianity is destroying the fabric of our culture and nation. Wow. That's a strong claim, isn't it? It often runs countercultural. It doesn't destroy the fabric. We know that if anything, it invests it with a degree of morality and compassion and grace and decency that the world did not, that they did not know before that. You know, uh, a kindness and a patience. But there is an intolerance in Christianity because it does say this, there is no God. But God, all these others are idols. They have ears, but do not hear. They have eyes that do not see. They cannot walk. They cannot move. They cannot answer prayer. They can do nothing. But our God in heaven is a living God, a powerful God, maker of heaven and earth. Our God is not only a God who is powerful, living and active. Our God is a God who saves. And there is no other salvation. And so it's strong language. Again, Paul, when he returns to Jerusalem in Acts 21, James tells him, people are upset with you because they're talking about, in Acts 21, 21, that among the, Jew, the Jews who are among the Gentiles, you tell them to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. They're just all still so caught up in those things. And we can do it too. All right. There could be someone who could possibly show up this morning and look at me and say, how dare that man preach without a tie on? I cannot believe it. No tie and jacket. God have mercy on his soul. But how often did Jesus and the apostles wear ties? Oh, very rarely. Right. 
And from different traditions, you have all kinds of different things. Sometimes men preach in, I'll call them choir robes. I often call them frocks or dresses. Um, uh, is, is that what the scriptures require of us? No. Uh, or special collar. White, you know. Is that what is required of us? And so, but then someone's going to show up and he's going to preach in a tank top, shorts, and flip flops. I don't think that's ideal. And, and so, again, uh, what I'm saying is I also have my opinions and feelings and all those kind of things. And some will say the reason why we ought to wear our Sunday best is to give our best to the Lord. And that sounds wonderful. But another person will say, but that's not how you ordinarily dress every other day of the week. So why do we put on our Sunday's best and put on our Sunday behavior and we become religious robots for a single day and then back to normal life? And so some would say, isn't it more reasonable to, in the general scope of what we ordinarily wear, to wear that? Because our faith is not, Sunday is not distinct from other days. Well, there's some reasonability in that. I do question whether or not some men necessarily ever, some people dress down for church than they normally would for their other things. And, and so we have to kind of process these things. And, and some churches sing only hymns and some have praise songs and some, strangely enough, will not only not, only not sing praise songs and not sing hymns, but will only sing psalms. And each of these groups is convinced they are better than the others. Of course, part of the problem with the, those who sing only psalms, sometimes they sing like this. Sing unto the Lord a new song. But they don't ever actually sing a new song because, you know. Or they will insist piano only because that is, or organ only. While singing... Worship the Lord with strings. Play skillfully to the Lord on the harp and the lyre. Worship the Lord with cymbals, but do not ever actually hit a cymbal. I was like, wait a second. This is confusing. And it can be confusing. And so what I'm urging is this. Our goal is not necessarily to, to, to try to break all customs and to say, well, let's exercise maximum freedom. No, no, no. Let's glorify Christ. Let's fix our hearts upon him. Let's fix our minds upon him. Let's dress in such a way that it will not be distracting. And realistically, if I was wearing shorts and flip-flops and a tank top, there would be someone here that would be like distracted. They would not be able to hear a word that I say because of my knees. You know, and, and, and so the whole point is we don't want to be a distraction because the whole, the goal is that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be exalted. And so we see all of these things unfolding. The priority is that God would be glorified. I'm going to have to drive forward faster than I intended. He says in verse chapter 10, verse 28 also, you yourselves know, speaking to Cornelius. 
how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with, associate with or visit anyone from another nation. That's a tradition they caught up. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he knew this here. He would later practice differently. But he understood the significance of it. And uh, Jesus deals with, with the apostles in this kind of thing later on. It says this in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says to, to the scribes and Pharisees, when they say, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Jesus says this. He answered, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And that sounds strong, but it gets even stronger in verse seven and nine, through, or 8 and 9. This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then he goes on to say this. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so we've got to be, get back to what is it that we do? There are, some there are some people out there, and I, and I know uh, uh, some well, who will say, you know, I don't feel like I've, I've been to church unless all together we stand and recite the Apostles' Creed. Well, the Apostles never did that. And actually, it's not the Apostles' Creed. That wasn't even written in the first century. There's no place where the scripture urges that. There's no place where it was practiced. There's no place where those particular things were known. Well, I don't feel like I've been to church if we haven't done that. You let yourself be caught up in those things. And what's sad is, if they've done those things, maybe the word of God was not faithfully preached. Maybe Christ was not rightly exalted. But you still feel like you've been to church because it's ticked the boxes of your particular experience. I just want God to help us with those things. And so how do we then get where we go and what we ought to do? Simple phrase. I want to take the rest of it from Acts chapter 10. I love this. Verse 33. So I sent for you at once, Cornelius says, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, that's what we do every time we gather, isn't it? I would hope that this would be the heart of God's people in churches all across this land. We are here and gathered in the presence of God to hear all that he commanded. The centrality of the word. Faithfully declared to God's people. And again, it is... What God has commanded, the apostle himself had alone, had the authority to make that clear and make that demand. Reminding you what it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 2. Jesus had spent time with the apostles before he was taken up. And it says this in Acts 1 2. Until the day when he was taken up, he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. They would be the ones 
who alone would be able to declare, this is the will of the Lord. This is the command of Christ. They would have the right even of, of binding and loosing, which means they could say, now you can eat pork chops. And now you can have shrimp. But then they, they, they could go further and say, but have nothing to do with idolatry and greed and immorality. And, and they could heighten things and say, you know what? It's not just adultery that's a problem. Lust itself is also a problem. You need to turn from even, not just the outward acts, but the inward influence. You must turn. So Christ is going to heighten it. So listen to what it says. So Christ gave the commands. And it says this. Paul, when speaking to the church in Corinth, says these words. I have to close pretty quickly here. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, you know, regardless, there are still people roaming around claiming to be a prophet or claiming to be spiritual, but there is a distinction between them and those unique men who were appointed as apostles to give the commands of Christ. He says this, if anyone says he's a prophet or, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. There is a distinction. One comes with authority. The authority comes through the word. This was one of the cries of the Reformation that flowed out of the arguments of Martin Luther. Why are, why are the councils saying this? Why is the Pope saying this? But the word of God says differently. The authority is not invested in men. The authority is in the word of God. And God gave us his word through his holy prophets of old and through his apostles in the days of the scriptures. Again, uh, just briefly drawing our attention, if you would listen to this. Um, John says this in 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Again, the we in the context there, he opens it by saying, we are those who saw him ate with him, touched him, the Lord of glory, the, the apostles who witnessed eyewitnesses to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, he would say, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So where is the clear distinctive? The spirit of truth is what is given to us through the apostles. The spirit of error is all that comes from human hearts and minds. The scriptures make that wonderfully clear. Um, just lastly. Oh, we are all out of time. But Paul urges them to pay close attention um, to the traditions that are established by his own writings. But I don't want to end with, with, without this. In arguing against, in this passage, um, the customs and traditions of man, as well, well as in setting forth the commands of Christ that come through the apostles, the highest priority still remains this. The moment he begins speaking, 
It says this, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality in every place, but everyone who fears him does what is right and acceptable. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Again, the, the highest goal, we are so thankful for the apostolic authority that has given us the reliable, inerrant, and trustworthy word of God. We must be careful not to let ourselves become captive to the customs and traditions of man. But we can become so incessant at fighting for things scripture teaches versus the customs of certain men that we miss one thing. And what did Peter get to right away when he began speaking? Christ is all in all. The reason why we treasure the scriptures and it has the authority is because they are the commands of Christ. The reason we hope into the, in the gospel is because it is the gospel of Christ. The reason we're not captive to the customs of this world is because we will not be caught up by human tradition or, or uh, earthly philosophy, but Christ. We want to know Christ and him crucified. We want to exalt him. We want to walk after him. We want to fix our eye upon him who is seated at the right hand of God. So in all of the cautiousness and in all of the commitment to the scripture over against custom, let us be unwavering in those things, but let us be unwavering in those things as our eyes remain fixed on Christ. Far be it for us to ever gather together as God's people. And we speak a lot of truth. But he who is the way, the truth, and the life not be mentioned among us. May Christ always be our all in all. May he be glorified in all things. Let's pray. God, once again, even on such a morning as this where there's so much meaty material in this, I'm reminded how much I too am just a man. And since my own inadequacy, but I thank you that you can indeed in the reading of your word and by the power of your spirit make clear the richness of the progress that we have as you brought the old covenant to an end and brought the new covenant in your blood. The hope that is in Christ that's not bound up in any fleshly culture, but that is rooted in the full and finished work of our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you also that we have been granted those words, those wonderful and glorious words that we might go forth and declare them to the world, that one gospel that saves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.